The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism, Abu Dhabi. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show, in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create, and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi, proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... We see all sorts of evidence that show that when communities are more walkable, when they're safe, that people are more connected. While the holiday season brings festive cheer to many, it can also be the time when feelings of stress and isolation are at their strongest. So how do our cities have an impact both positively and negatively, on our mental health. Today we dive into a recent US Surgeon General's advisory highlighting an uptick in feelings of loneliness and isolation. Plus we speak to one of the founders behind a research centre in Amsterdam looking at the effect the urban environment has on mood. And we discuss how public art can tap into the way that we feel. All that and much more ahead in the next 30 minutes here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. Earlier this year, the US Surgeon General published an advisory on what they described as a recent epidemic of loneliness and isolation. The document cited the healing effects of social connection and community, something that cities, in theory, should be well-equipped to deliver. But does the urban environment really foster community, or does it just emphasise the disconnection that many of us feel? I'm joined now by Dr Julianne Holt-Lundstad, a psychologist at Brigham Young University and the lead science editor on the Surgeon General's recent publication. Julianne, thank you for joining us. Can you explain why you think now was the moment for bringing to light this issue of isolation? I have been studying the topic and researching the topic for roughly two decades. And of course, I'm not the first one to study this. And so evidence has been building for a while that not only do our social connections have protective effects, but lacking connection carries risk to our health, safety, prosperity. And this evidence has been building for a while. And then in you know recent years, these concerns have risen, I think in part due to various shifting trends in society. And then we are faced with a global pandemic (laughs) where we need to limit social contact with others. And so people were experiencing isolation and loneliness on a global scale. And it was really the culmination of all of these things that not only sparked the urgency to act in the U.S., but of course, we're seeing 
efforts around the globe with many countries, including the UK, in many ways leading some of that work to try and really address this public health concern. Now, we often think about being lonely as almost down to the individual to fix, you know, why didn't you get out more? Why didn't you make more friends? Why didn't you join a society? But I think what's interesting about the advisory is it makes clear that this is a, a social challenge and, and one that needs a social response. Do you think we've been a little bit remiss in the past not recognising this as such a challenge and, and kind of thinking it's because people are lazy, because they're on their phones too much, that they're not, not making these connections? Right. I mean, that perspective puts far too much burden on the individual. You know, of course, loneliness can feel very personal, right? (laughs) But I think it's become clear that this is more than a personal issue. It's more than a private matter. And one potential positive from the pandemic is that it helped us raise awareness of not only just this issue, but also the recognition of a couple of really important points. And the first is that clearly there can be external sources that can cause someone's isolation or loneliness. And so it helps us recognize that it's not entirely driven by the individual and that external forces can have strong impacts. The other major lesson that I think it helps us learn is that as we had to limit our social contact, it impacted every aspect of life. It impacted employment, education, how we shop, how we travel, how we get our entertainment, and so much more. And because this has impacted every sector of society, It also points out how every sector of society, social contact is relevant. And every sector of society then can potentially play a role in understanding what we can do about this, not only recognizing the barriers that exist within every sector of society, but also the opportunities that exist. Now, one of the reasons we want you on the show is we wonder about how the built environment, about how our community construction can change all sorts of things, health outcomes, mental health outcomes. And certainly in your report, it makes clear that community and housing and outdoor space and your workplaces, these can all be instrumental in lessening the occurrence of loneliness. Could you explain to us a little bit about the significance of that? Yeah, it's really quite remarkable how our physical space can really have a powerful influence on our behaviors, including our social lives. And this can have an influence either by just simply making it easier or harder to do. (laughs) So that can be something as simple as how a building is configured that would influence how one might travel through that space and the likelihood of encountering other people to the kinds of other factors like how walkable a community is. You can imagine that the more walkable and feeling safe in your neighborhood, the more time you're likely to spend in your community and then engage with others in your community. And we see all sorts of evidence that show that this has tremendous amount of impact 
that when communities are more walkable, when they're safe, people are more connected. Interestingly, there's a large and growing body of evidence that is looking at things even like green space and increasing the ability to spend time in nature and how that impacts our feelings of loneliness. So I'm probably preaching to the choir here (laughs) of just how important the built environment is because it does make such a, a huge difference in terms of the ease or difficulty in which we can engage with others. Post-pandemic, we have a lot of remote working, which is obviously good and beneficial for some people, but does mean that many people now spend additional hours alone in their own homes without contact with other people. If you go to a supermarket, you do self-checkout. Restaurants are introducing apps so that you don't have to speak to the waiter when you want to pay your bill. We seem to be intent on stripping out those moments of serendipity where you bump into somebody. We seem intent on reducing the number of potential conversations we'll have during the day. As it happens more and more, do you think that we lose the ability to make those connections a little bit? Do you think that we're in a, in a bit of a loop here, a downward loop, unfortunately, that is going to be hard to break? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm absolutely concerned. It's tricky, though, because with each of these things, they're taking hold because they also have certain advantages. In some ways, they make our lives more convenient. And, you know, from a conceptual standpoint, neuroscientists think of loneliness as a biological cue like hunger or thirst. And because humans are social beings and have needed social contact for survival, you know, throughout human history, we're biologically, so to speak, wired for connection. And that loneliness is basically this biological signal like hunger and thirst that motivates us to seek out social connection. And the interesting parallel with that is that We are in a position where during the pandemic, we had to limit contact with people. And we have good evidence that many, many people suffered. But in an effort to cope with that, because humans are very adaptable, we have created a lot of conveniences. You know, we can work remotely, we can order our food completely contactless, right? We can get our entertainment from home. In many ways, it's really comfortable. We don't have to go out. We don't have to put pants on, right? And it might seem like it takes more effort to get out. It might take effort to engage with other people. And I'm hearing more and more that people feel more comfortable just staying home. And this is somewhat concerning because we are becoming more isolated But people have the perception that if they're choosing it and they don't feel lonely, it doesn't have the same kinds of consequences. And yet we have very robust data that both isolation and loneliness are linked to these outcomes. And in fact, isolation can have these effects independent of feeling lonely. So as we as a society are moving more and more in a way that where things are automated and we have less and less human contact, there could be even more profound kinds of public health consequences. Julianne, before you go, let's leave people with a a bit of a, a mission for 2024. What are one of the two things that they can do to 
maybe less than their own loneliness, but certainly less than the loneliness of their their friends and neighbours who just may need somebody to pick up the phone and ask them to go out for dinner or to whether they would like to go for a walk. Because I would encourage everyone to read this advisory because what's extraordinary is whether it's educational outcomes, whether it's your your chances of surviving a heart attack, whether it's getting diabetes, whether it's social cohesion, whether it's whether you trust the news. All of these things, it turns out, are impacted by this notion of loneliness. So, Julianne, let's give people a little bit of homework to do for 2024. Absolutely. I actually did a large multi-country randomized control trial, so there's actual evidence behind this. (laughs) But what we found was that when we asked people to just do small acts of kindness for their neighbors over the course of four weeks, we found that people reported less loneliness, greater connection, and less conflict. And what's interesting is we only measured the person doing the small act of kindness and presumably the person on the receiving end benefited as well. But I think what is so powerful about that is that these small little actions that literally anyone can do, you know, reach out and it doesn't even have to be a neighbor, a friend, a family member, see how they're doing. Find out if there's some way that you can help them. And what this evidence suggests is that some of the best ways to help ourselves is by helping others. Julianne Holt-Lundstad there. Thank you for joining me. From high stress to increased isolation, urban environments can clearly have an influence on depression and anxiety. But how could cities provide some solutions too? The Centre for Urban Mental Health, formed by the University of Amsterdam, was created to find answers for these questions. Earlier, Monocle's Carlotta Rabello spoke with one of the co-founders of the Centre for Urban Mental Health, Dr Claudi Bocketing, to discuss the centre and what they're hoping to achieve through their research. Carlotta began by asking how the centre was created. It's important to study but also target factors in the natural habitat of human beings. In nearly 30 years, 68% of the population globally lives in a city. So that has become more and more our natural environment. And you could say, okay, that's nice, because for many people, the city is very appealing. There are all kinds of opportunities and culture and uh, jobs and so on. But we also know that urbanicity also comes with not so good things. And that is actually challenge when it comes to stress levels. And it even seems to translate in more mental health problems. We studied with help of data that WHO, so the World Health Organization, collected globally. They had all the data ready with an estimation of mental health problems. And now I get to the results. We found that there is a non-linear relationship or association with mental health. And this sounds very academic, but I will explain a bit more. We found that if more than 50 to 60% of the population lives in urban settings or in cities, then you see that urbanicity, so living in a city, is associated with heightened levels of anxiety disorders, depression and addiction. And what we're trying to study is try to find out what's the chicken and the egg. So what are the mechanisms and why do we do that? Because we want to find new target points to tackle this. 
So not only to tackle it when people already are addicted or have depression, but we also try to find new target points to prevent these common mental health problems and conditions. What we try to do is to not only study when things go downhill, when you get into a negative spiral, but we also try to sort out what makes that people actually flourish in an urban environment. Because we think if you understand this, you might also get new target points to understand what happens in a city that you have maybe a higher chance to get in this negative spiral. And how we look at it is that mental health problems do not arise because of one problem or one cause. It's actually the result of your neurobiology, all the things that you experienced in life, trauma, but also all kinds of other things, but also your environment and even global things like, for instance, COVID-19. So what kind of factors, national and international factors, urban factors like the buildings, whether you can walk through the street with not too much noise, whether there's access to safe green spaces, how this contributes to, on the one hand, flourishing, and on the other hand, getting into a negative spiral with all kinds of mental health problems that can result in all kinds of mental health conditions. That's what we're trying to do. I wonder what are other contributing factors that impact us as residents of cities in a positive way? What are other things that contribute to the way we feel in cities? Positive factors could be, for instance, the accessibility to culture in line with your preferences. So if you're very interested in specific type of theatre in a city, you have a higher chance that you will find it. And also, this might likely also help you to get connected to others that might have the interest of you. So I think this is something in a city that could be a flourishing uh, factor, but also very practical things like there are more job opportunities, so you have something to choose. And there are lots of opportunities to educate yourself. So this might be for those who are interested, like an enormous opportunity. But on the other hand, if you don't have any money to spend to go to a theater or so on, this could be a limiting factor. So is it safe to describe cities as being both the problem and the solution then? I think you're right. I think there's definitely an opportunity in cities. But if you don't take into consideration the human factor in any kind of things you're trying to plan, it might create more problems than we maybe imagine on forehand. But the good thing is, given that it also involves urban planning, there might also be what we call sort of macro level options to facilitate human beings. For instance, having the opportunity to be exposed a little bit to green spaces, even if it's on a balcony, it could already be a good step. Or having the opportunity to, when you're on your bicycle and you have to go to work, and part of that bicycle lane is actually with more green spaces but also less noise, it could be that it might have a positive effect on mental health. There is already some brain research showing that it does decrease your stress levels. So there are all kind of opportunities there. 
when you think about concepts such as the 15-minute city, is that something that impacts those urban stressors you have been describing? This idea of, you know, having a more connected, pedestrian, human-centric city, is that something that can positively impact the way we as humans relate to stress in an urban context? I think there are definitely opportunities there. But it completely depends on how it is done. Of course, we know also there are large individual differences when it comes to vulnerability or your coping, how you deal with things. So for some people, this might be an excellent way to create social cohesion and that you feel more at ease. But for some people that might have the highest risk for getting mental health conditions, it might be that they actually feel like they are in an environment that they're supposed to do all kinds of things that they find very hard to do. So it might maybe even lead to more isolation. So that's why what we're trying to do is not only come up with very simple solutions. For instance, we published the first paper in which we demonstrated this nonlinear relationship And one of the things that we do, we studied systematically what factors do indeed predict in urban context a good or a bad mental health. And one of them was an association between green spaces. So if you're exposed to more green spaces, you see better urban mental health. But you do not know what's the chicken and the egg. But it's very easy then to say, you know what, we have to send everyone to the green spaces in the city. But then if you... Explore this a little bit more. You see, even in bad neighborhoods in a city, you see there's often a lot of green spaces, but mental health is not so good over there. And that's because it's not only about the green spaces. It also has to be a very safe spot, right? So I think there are lots of opportunities, but we have to look at the system as a whole. If we target this, what happens there? And it could be that... For some individuals, a specific type of urban planning really has a good effect, whereas for others not. And what's usually the case in the past is that all these initiatives are especially very good for those who actually have a low risk anyway. Dr. Claudie Bochting there in conversation with Monocle's Carlotta Rebello. So how can design choices help to deliver more mentally enriching spaces for people to live, work, learn and play in? Recently, Monocle's David Stevens spoke with Amir Ramzani, director of the London and Cork-based Avanti Architects. Avanti's new Regents College project saw them design an alternative provision school in the busy area of London's Shoreditch, part of a swathe of schools they provided for the London borough of Hackney. NRC saw them create a mixed-use, partially residential solution, which also delivered on the unique needs and mental health requirements of those using the school. David began by asking Amir to explain some of the specific requirements of this project. The school itself, they wanted to replace the school, but also to rethink how special needs provision was being delivered across the borough. So the scheme really emerged into what is now known as alternative provision. It basically caters for a whole range of different cohorts of pupils. So it's those who are excluded from mainstream schools, those families who come into the borough who have temporary needs, pupils who are vulnerable, 
and also particularly to certain cohorts. So there is within the building a vulnerable girls unit, those girls which are being impacted by behaviours around them and how they could be protected and created a safe environment for them to learn. So it's unique in the country. I mean, there is alternative provision across the country, but this particular brief is unique. And so it's set up a whole set of dynamics around how these different groups can be part of a single institution, but also protected and be separated off from each other as and when their education needs or emotional needs required. That developed really the school brief. And in effect, then on top of that, we overlaid a sort of residential brief and that then developed into sort of what type of residential accommodation would work on this site. You talk about some of the behavioural considerations there, but how does mental health play into housing these students with these specific needs? And it's not just about the pupils, actually. It's about the staff as well, because some of these environments are very stressful for staff. And so it's also maintaining their sense of well-being. The scheme sits in quite an urban location, you know, very close to the Old Street roundabout, very dense, lots of noise, lots of traffic and pollution. And so one of the opportunities that the site provided was that it was one block back from City Road and all of the noise that goes with it. So it created naturally a safe haven, I think, for the groups which were going to occupy the building. But really fundamentally, also the building has an external shell, but also an interior sort of environment. So the school is organised around a courtyard. That courtyard creates a sort of a different world, really, for those people. So away from that sort of very grainy sort of urban environment, it creates a softer area, an area where you can contemplate, uh, feel that there's a different place. And of course, you know, a lot of the children who this school caters for is they have very poor home environments. It might be a lack of space. It might be the quality of the accommodation. And so this creates a very high quality environment, very calm, away from noise, good landscaping, good green provision for not only those pupils, but also for staff. The building is also organised in such a way that safety is always in mind. So if a child or a, a staff member got into a situation which they were uncomfortable they could escape in two different directions. So that really fundamentally organised the building, that there was never any dead corner, that somebody felt trapped or was in a situation where they were uncomfortable. The rest of it is really about sort of good quality daylight aspect. The school really fundamentally organises itself in one orientation and the residential accommodation in another. So they're kind of kept apart. So those two uses can be in synergy, but can cohabit comfortably and they don't feel that there's issues of overlooking. And one of the things we saw with one or two projects at that time, which were emerging, were that the school felt overlooked by residential accommodation, that there wasn't enough done in the design to try and separate uses. And so we've got a number of strategies that the building adopts, one of them being landscaping, one is about the layering of the elevations to try and deflect views away, and also just the planning of and zoning of accommodation, that critical accommodation is not perceived as being overlooked. And in terms of evidence, what are you hearing or seeing? Are students performing better? Are teachers feeling more comfortable? What can you say about the success of the design? I mean, we've been in a very fortunate position where we've delivered quite a lot of schools for this client. And actually, the 
executive head of uh, New Regions College is somebody who we've delivered other projects for. We've had a very long-term relationship with him, I'd say, for about maybe 10, 12 years. And as a result of this sort of projects coming on stream with the same client, we've been able to really be in continuous dialogue to understand whether things have worked and feedback loops, really good feedback loops. When we went to the opening, I mean, the school opened and then after about a year, year and a half, they had an opening, a formal opening, where they invited people from the borough, politicians, local politicians. And the feedback then from the head was how transformative it's been for some of the pupils. That sort of sense of quality of environment really has a a huge effect on ambition within pupils and the fact that they feel that the local authority cares about them. And I think that comes through in the quality of environment that is there. One of the things that this head has always said, and we've got the evidence from the other schools, with a very similar approach, is that attainment has statistically gone up and behaviour, pupil behaviour, has improved. So those are actual metrics that are measured and are coming through on other projects. This one, I think it's a little bit early days, maybe. I mean, the school is two years old in effect, but we're hearing very good reports from that at the moment. And just finally, if you were to write the book on how to deliver urban education facilities with these mental health considerations, what would be the chapter headings? I think it's about understanding, firstly, the nature of living in cities now. I mean, they're crowded places, they're very stressful environments. Being on the pavement, in effect, can be stressful in a lot of parts of London. So I think it's that sort of understanding of the context. I keep on sort of referring to it as an interior world, really. Something that takes people away and allows them to reflect on things outside of the stresses of the city. I mean, probably the other part of it, and it touches on residential accommodation, is about healthy living, really, and about how the interior spaces have got good aspect, views onto landscape and trees, good daylight, good ventilation, all those things which are interior disciplines of how you make a healthy environment. Amir Ramzani there, speaking with Monocle's David Stevens. Could neuroaesthetics end the urban isolation problem? That's a question that the organisation Graphic Rewilding hopes to answer, and they are bringing wildlife imagery to the city streets in order to do it. Graphic Rewilding creates nature-inspired public artworks and immersive environments, especially in lost urban areas, in the hope of mitigating some of the effects that the lack of exposure to green space has on city dwellers. I'm pleased to say that I'm now joined by Lee Baker, the co-founder of Graphic Rewilding with Catherine Borowski, and who's also one half of their creative duo, Baker and Borowski. Lee, thank you so much for joining me. Now, you've told me that exposure to nature has helped with your mental health in the past. But what's interesting is that even just the image or the depiction of nature can have that positive effect too. Absolutely. And it was weird because I didn't come to nature through nature. I came to nature through the lens of people, of artists. And I've always been an artist. And, you know, as David Hockney always points out, the idea of new nature, new nature as expressed through the human lens. And 
what I realised was I was looking, you know, my mum's house was full of pictures of nature, you know, Laura Ashley wallpaper in my bedroom covered in my heavy metal posters. And then after a while I was realising, because I've always been a, a gamer, played a lot of video games. And I realised that when I was playing games where I was getting to walk through or ride a horse through some virtual landscape... I was getting good feelings from this, you know, and I wanted to investigate why. And it turns out that even virtual environments, even pictures, even these things can give you those natural highs that being in nature can. And it goes right back to our kind of Neolithic ancestors and very low parts of our brains, if you like. These often end up in slightly unloved quarters. Is there any way of you kind of, even for anecdotal, gauging the reaction and what happens when suddenly something that looks shabby or derelict or lost suddenly has this kind of injection of colourful flowers and of nature? Oh, absolutely. Fairly early on, actually, we started seeing this anecdotally where we were given a space that was 30 metres square of just concrete. There was nothing. It was hoardings, concrete and nothing. And it was a really busy, dirty road. So we spent a while and created something that was based on the Victorian pleasure gardens or inspired by that were nearby that in the 17th and 18th century had thrived. So we wanted to create something that was inspired by that. I'm not kidding. As soon as we opened the gates for it as such, people rushed in. They had no space. They had no space. The most they had was a pot plant on their balcony you know and they were coming in and they were literally saying we've got nothing in the area and all we did was put down this kind of colorful garden and you know it was augmented by plants but it had astroturf it had you know it was fake it was completely fake and yet people were drawn straight to it crawley which really suffered during the pandemic a lot of their population of crawley were employed by gatwick airport so in the south of london yes very close to one of the big airports to gatwick airport that's right yeah so a lot of people there were employed And during the pandemic, I mean, they all lost their jobs. They were all on furlough. It was very depressing. And one of their uh, high streets, they contacted us and asked us to graphically rewild one of their streets. So we did like a 90 metre takeover of this street. And the reaction we got from it was palpable. And we actually put out postcards. So we did it post and pre. So pre, we put out postcards asking people what were their favourite flowers? What were the flowers of the countries they came from? Because quite often we work in diverse areas. So we're asking for cultural connections to the flowers that we put up and then we're asking afterwards what's your reaction to this space you know and the written anecdotal reaction seems really positive you're describing lots of situations where it's a slightly temporary injection meanwhile spaces yeah does that piss you off <laughs> they're gonna get taken down and, it, and removed at some point yeah, and it does gonna... it does because i suppose often green spaces are seen as more permanent spaces and often art is seen as a temporary fix i think we work a lot with developers and it's often meanwhile use also it's unfortunate that private land is often the land that is offering this because it's a transaction isn't it they need to make their spaces good so people come and visit the spaces and they hire their what they're offering in terms of office retail and those kind of things so often that transaction is unfortunate but it's what fuels the art when we started our previous incarnation what we have now which is a project called skip gallery for about seven years which provides space in the form of skips to artists to show their work we didn't even apply to the arts council or anything because we just wanted to get on with it we didn't want to prove to anyone that this stuff worked we just wanted to do it ourselves and often it was the developers that had the space and had the money 
So just tell me about Skip Art because it backs into our conversation as well because it's interesting how you bring something to the street and temporary but joyful. How does that project work? Catherine and I both are passionate, I suppose, about public art. We've worked in the public realm for ages. Catherine's mum died and she was from the Islington area and we wanted to do something to celebrate her life. And it wasn't ironic. It was just Catherine had had this idea to show an artwork in a skip. And we decided... We as gonna, you do. As you do. I know, I know. It was just this bonkers, crazy, conceptual... She's a very conceptual artist. I'm very visual. She's very conceptual. She had this conceptual idea to start showing work in a skip. But her first idea was a conceptual piece and it was a funeral for her mum. And we had this crazy performance in a skip. We're both very influenced by Christo and the work he's done in urban environments. We wanted to do this kind of conceptual piece around her mum. And it was so successful. We didn't intend to carry it on. It was just so successful. We were like, okay, we've got to do this again, you know. I had bumped into David Trigley in a local cafe near where I live. And I found out where he lived. And I put a letter in his door. And I just said, we've got a gallery in a skip. Will you show your work? And he was like, yeah. Yeah, he texted me. I left my phone on the V. He texted me. Yeah, I'll show my work. That set this ball rolling. And seven years later, we've had 24 shows around London, around the UK, in Milan. We've just done one in New York in spaces where we're creating a vessel where there's usually just thin air. That's the idea is this conceptual idea of, you know, you put some walls around it, call it a gallery and it's a gallery. And these are public things that people just walk past. We don't charge. We don't sell work. It's just a conceptual idea that artwork can be anywhere. And these skips people walk past every day. They are representative of the way we disassemble and reassemble the world as we see fit. And people walk past them and don't notice them. And we were like, yeah, we're going to make people notice these things. What is it on the urban side or making better public realm that urges you on? It sounds to me there's a a notion of bringing joy to the city. Yeah, and it's funny, I've been looking over my career in in a similar kind of eye, like what's spurred us on, and it's been very much about reaching people at eye level with art, but not patronising people. And I think even very early on, I never really wanted to make work that was just in my studio and then you hand it to someone who sells it to a wealthy person and, you know, we all have to make a living, but that wasn't how I wanted to do it. I wanted to create work in the public realm that everyday people who was maybe frightened of going through those glass doors of those places. I mean, it's much more accepted now. It feels much more commonplace for exhibitions. But back in the 90s, I remember, like, it was the hallowed ground. You didn't walk into galleries unless you knew what you were doing. And I think Catherine and I are very inspired by public art. We still are. We still love it when cities start thriving, when the artists have taken over areas or some mayor or a councillor with vision has brought art. You know, Newcastle is a brilliant example. I was a student there for many years and stayed for a couple of years and they were had a vision up there, you know, and they really transformed the city with art at its core. Lee Baker, thank you very much for joining me. And you can find more at graphicrewilding.com. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to get new episodes direct to you every week. The Urbanist is produced by Carlotta Rabello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's Ray with Environmental Anxiety. Thank you for listening, city lovers. She hates
so we 